the goal is to teach the whole counsel of God to the whole church. That's the goal. And that requires a certain degree of being technical. So we get the details, but as we were talking earlier with a couple of us, it also needs to be accessible, A-C-C-E-S-S, to people learning. And uh, we're committed to doing the best we can to bring the details to you so you understand what God said, and it helps us understand the biblical definition of the church. So, to that end, I have, probably have some slides. I don't know if you have, do you have this one? No. It's a review, okay. So, thank you for being here in church, and we're here to learn. Let me read verses 18 and 19, which is review, and then we'll move forward as we go through the text here. It says in Acts 20, 18 and 19, and when they had come to him, this is the Ephesian elders, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And as I say here on the slide, we know that he was three years of ministry there. So that's why Ephesus is so important in the New Testament. And what happens in Ephesus, what was taught in Ephesus, is central to the biblical definition of the church in the New Testament for reasons I mentioned last week, which included the fact that we have the epistle to the Ephesians, which has a lot about the church, starting from the eternal perspective and bringing it all the way down to details. We have the Ephesian elders and Paul's address to them here that we're going to study, which defines the leadership of the church. Plus, we have the two epistles to Timothy, who was a uh, in Ephesus when he received those. And in particular, if you were to look at 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you see specific details about Christian ministry and leadership and what ought to be done in the church. So I would go so far as to say that any um, book teaching, theory, explanation of defining the church that doesn't give due heed to this material is going to be deficient because it's some of the best and most detailed we have about the leadership of the church, the message of the church, the practices of the church, and even the eternal perspective from before time on to eternity if you look at the book of Ephesians. And so that's why I'm focusing on this. And this section of Acts is very important. Let's uh, have prayer as we delve into the details. Thank you, dear Lord, for our opportunity to gather together. Pray for those who are sick or suffering and cannot get here. Pray that you'd be with them and bring healing and comfort to them. And may we 
care for one another and pray for one another and help us learn together as we seek you and search your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time I had these lists and someone asked the list, they were just in my notes. So that's why I redid my PowerPoint. So you get the list. Now these, I, the source of this particular list was Dr. Schnabel, and I give my source here. His commentary is one I got when I was probably halfway through Acts, and it's, it's, it's just a fantastic one. And so what do we know about Paul's ministry based on these passages? Um, yeah, I did not shrink from declaring to, to you, go back. He said, uh, from the first day I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord, humility, tears, trials, and plots, and so on. So what do we know about that? Whoops, I hit the wrong button. His ministry was public. That's certainly true. Public would mean Christianity in the church is not a secret society. You don't have to join first and give your money, and then later you find out what you joined. You don't have to take an oath first and then later find out what you just took an oath to go do. That was one of my big criticisms of Rick Warren, purpose-driven. I have many criticisms, but one was you can't require people to take an oath on the first page of your book and they don't even have the data to discern whether they're swearing to something good or something bad. I hereby swear I will commit 40 days to whatever it was. And then you find out later that a lot of it wasn't really correct. That's not truly what it means to be public, accessible, A-C-C-E-S-S, and um, with humility and so on. If you so are so sure that your process is the thing everybody needs, that they should take an oath, you're not doing this in humility. Okay, it's just obvious. So Paul, with his, he said he was with them in humility, in service, tears, trials, and and it was an exemplary way to do ministry. And I think I pointed out last week that this is also in keeping with the teachings of Jesus in Luke, Luke Acts 2 volume work, and also things Paul taught elsewhere. Do nothing, Philippians 2, 3, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Jesus said, Luke twenty two twenty six. But you talk about the, how the Gentiles act. It must not be this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you will become the youngest. The youngest, by the way, was dishonorable in their society. The aged were honored. Youth were not to be trusted. America reversed that. When I was young, the motto was, don't trust anybody over 30. <laughs> Until you're over 30, then you decide you have a different idea. <laughs> trust me. 
Now, the, here's something else that we should learn from that. There, there's things that are part of the synagogue that are closer to the model of what the church is than the temple is. And that'll come up as we go along. When um, honoring the elderly for the wisdom that they have is a godly thing. The word for elder, uh, presbyteros, in its simplest form means an older man. That doesn't mean being old makes you an elder, but it tells you something about wisdom gained through uh, years of faithful service. And so amongst those who would qualify, there should be some gravity and humility and concern for the well-being of the flock. Um, Back to our list here. Corporate. Okay, so this isn't done in some secret place that only some people know what's going on. Publicly, corporately, openly. Exemplary. The elders and teachers should be people that, by God's grace, don't make a set of rules that apply to everybody else, but not to themselves. Well, in, in civic life here in America, that's an epidemic. Hypocrisy is epidemic in our society. The people with the most power are the ones who wouldn't even dream of living the rules that they put on everybody else. And that's when things are really in serious decline. But the civil government's not the church. What's really bad, there's three groups here. The Jews, the Greeks, the church of God from 1 Corinthians. Those are the categories. To the Jews, Paul's address was Pisidian Antioch was the longest recorded speech. To the Greeks, the longest speech was in Acts 17 at Athens. Here's his address to the elders of the church. Here's his address to the church of God. The church of God, not meaning a denomination, but those who are who know Christ and are believing the truth of the gospel and are gathered together are learning here what Christian ministry is to look like. And so it should be exemplary. Does this mean that Elders never failed? No, but it does mean that those who are elders will submit to church discipline and change as needed, just like anybody else would. And Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy 2 and elsewhere. Subservient. Serving in ministry in the church is not a role that someone takes in order to achieve higher social standing or honorable status vis-a-vis others. Okay? This isn't in order to be somebody important. It's there uh, in order to serve the people of whoever they may be. Number five, it's selfless. If someone is very uh, bent on finding high status or gaining whatever it would be that motivates someone, 
There are plenty of opportunities to do that out there in the business world, but that's not what the church is about. And I'm not against people using their gifts the best way they can to provide for their families. But the church is not a status-oriented thing where who's important. We're going to see this, by the way, in next week's sermon that I'm laying out right now. It's material that probably rarely gets preached, but it's there, so I'm going to do it. There was a really wicked situation. And one of the main situ- ideas of, that would that you see in the amongst the scholars of this, and I've got some great sources, is that a person had so much clout, they're getting by with something, and people say, great, because we got this person in our church that they normally wouldn't even tolerate. And so Paul's going to rebuke them for that. So whatever status somebody has in the world doesn't give them an exemption to live a certain way in the church. Does that make sense? It's, it's bad enough that it's out in the world, but we're not shocked that the pagans live like pagans. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you're tolerating what even the pagans would blush about. But maybe he didn't, wasn't thinking about 2022 in America, but I, I, I digress. I don't know if the pagans here are able to blush about anything anymore. But let's go on. Embattled. The fact is that if you want Christendom in the big sense, which I don't consider Christianity, but Christendom to be happy with you, you're probably going to be very disappointed if you're faithful to the gospel and to the biblical definition of the church. You don't find status in the Christian world. You will, in fact, be embattled if you stand for the truth. Now, that doesn't prove you're right because the Bible says if you're buffeted for your faults, what honor is that? So just because somebody doesn't like me doesn't prove me right. The, the, the test is the word of God, not whether somebody didn't like it. So we need to be able to defend what we affirm to be the case when we teach the Bible. The thing that causes the worst error and we've been doing some work on, uh, through critical issues in our podcast about this. The thing that really sabotages the movements is when the status is so powerful in Christendom, in some version of it, we're talking about the New Apostolic Reformation, but it could be anything, that Every, the arenas are full, the praise, the great man of God, the, all this glory and stuff. And they take a stand that if you had to be in a debate, a moderated debate based on scripture alone with somebody who really knew the Bible, you'd get blown right out of the water because you can't defend what you're claiming. But they don't have to worry about that ever happening because they don't think scholarship is of any value. In fact, many think that if you study, it'll quench the spirit. Oh, yes. And we've had to, over the years, anti-scholastic bias is everywhere. Evangelicalism has been overtaken by anti-scholastic bias. 
And the implicit thought is, if you are pious, then you must know what the Bible means. But that doesn't follow. And um, we're dealing with that. We did some recording yesterday on on podcasts that we're doing, but that's just there. Somebody said, well, I prayed three hours, and then this is what I found out. Well, you can pray 20 hours, but it's never, ever going to change what the Bible already means. Because God cannot lie, and God has spoken the meanings determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired author, not by the reader. So I really don't care that a, a guy fasted for three days and and prayed for 10 hours, it doesn't mean he knows the Bible better than somebody who can just read it for what it says. So that's why I I believe in being transparent to a certain degree without being too nerdy, but that's that's not a Bible word. Is nerdy a Bible word? No, it's cultural. But the point would be the, the idea of the transparency on the scholarship is to cause by God's grace, a respect for scholarship. That was already built into the Jewish understanding that you respected those who were scholarly. Paul was certainly scholarly, as obviously Luke and, and the people that were learning here. So why can't we? We've got better tools. They didn't have computers. They, but they were able to deal with very, very sophisticated theological questions and do so with skill and now the assumption is a modern American can't be expected to know more than kindergarten level theology and that's just all too common okay 20 and 21 Acts 20 20 and 21 how I did not shrink from declaring to you Anything that was profitable, I have that highlighted in green, came out nicely up there, and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here we're getting more detail about what's necessary. Yeah, I got a list there, but let's stay on this slide. So this is not, I I don't believe I'm reading anything into this by taking this as programmatic for what is important for elders and teaching in a local church. Because Luke is telling us that's what it is. He had the address Pisidian Antioch and the synagogue to Jews. He had the address to the Athenian philosophers. This is the address to the church. The elders from Ephesus where he'd been three years. If we can't learn from this, I don't know what we're going to learn from. So this is the author, Luke, inspired by the Spirit, is telling us this is important. We need to take this and help us understand what church ministry is and what it looks like and what sort of practices and attitudes ought to be um, normative in local churches. 
And you know, the sad truth is, it's just not the case. At least in America, it is not the case. If you, uh, I was so surprised when some at, at the seminary were suggesting that we need to do marketing surveys. Even Christendom, if you just, mar- if, if you only asked Christians, you're not going to, f- nominal Christians, I mean, whoever goes to some church, how many are going to say, I want the details taught week by week so I know the whole counsel of God and solid Christian theology? And I want details. Who's going to say that? Just about nobody other than people who are hungry for the truth. It's the way it is. But we can't allow the pagan culture to decide what we're going to teach. So we're going to teach what, and, and do the study. And uh, I promise you, this is profitable to know what God said. It's uh, sanctifying. And that's where the disconnect comes. People don't actually believe that something as seemingly mundane as having the Bible accurately taught will change their lives. In 20th and 21st century America, where we are, the idea is something else is more practical. And what is it that's more practical? Pop psychology, motivational seminars, counseling, things like that. But I know that when the word of God weighs heavily upon us, it does change us because the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors of Scripture and inspired the word of God, the Scriptures, is the same Holy Spirit who's regenerated us. And there is always a connect between the born-again Christian, which would be a redundancy if it wasn't for Christendom, uh, those who know God will always grow because the very Holy Spirit who regenerated us, who inspired the Scriptures, is going to work in our lives through His means, which are the teachings of the Scriptures and remembering the promises of God. So he did not shrink from declaring anything profitable. He didn't say, I didn't shrink from declaring anything popular. Is there a difference between what's popular and what's profitable? Do I hear? (laughs) Well, I think it should be obvious that there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference. And... um, the, the pressure upon young people that are believing their call to the ministry, the pressure to be successful, to not get fired, to not uh, go, you know, be rejected. It's, it's really very, very difficult. That's, remember Paul said to Timothy, let no man despise your youth? That wouldn't even need to be said as human in America because youth is good, old is bad. But in the, their culture, they understood the wisdom that came with being an elder. An elder is an older man, only a particular type, 
one taught in scripture, yes. Yeah, well said. I'll, I'll give it to you, uh, Brian, too. The, what's interesting is Isaiah 3. I just looked it up a little bit ago. Isaiah 3, 4, when Isaiah was uh, talking about the sin of Israel, when they were engaged in deep sin, God handed them over to the youth. You can read that in Isaiah 3, 4. So what's interesting in America, as Bob is pointing out, the youth are elevated and the elders put down. But what God said is part of the judgment upon Judah and Israel was that they would be handed over to the youth rather than the wise man and the elder. And so it's actually a form, at least in Israel's case, it was a form of judgment. Thank you. That's a, that's a good... I'll give you the Donald Versa put award for an astute reading. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't drink coffee, so he just gets water. Uh, Jan and then Brian. I was just going to add that in Isaiah chapter 3, it talks about the women, too. There, and I, I think about the government today and how women have so taken over, and the men, where are they? Good point. Go ahead. Uh, in these verses, I think the irony here is pretty thick. You have the people that don't want to preach what's popular and they, he's preaching that he wants to preach everything that's profitable. But when you preach what is popular, it becomes profitable for the teacher that's preaching what's popular. Profitable monetarily and not profitable to the spiritual well-being. Okay? Now, this is why... First Corinthians is so helpful, which I didn't realize until I finished Ephesians that I need to do First Corinthians because the thing that once we get into the, uh, to use a colloquial expression, nuts and bolts, but you get into the details of it, what happens over and over again is groups have status based on something internal to the group. In some cases, you can reverse the whole thing like they did in uh, monasticism in Roman Catholicism. So you take something Jesus said, you know, about the, the poor, and so then you take an oath of poverty, so that proves now you have the highest status because you're the poorest. And it may seem pious, but it's the same dynamic. You're determining uh, uh, an order of who's more important now. And the real the fact is, according to 1 Corinthians, we don't even know who did the better job until later. Remember those things, the wood, hay, stubble, gold? Don't go on passing judgment before the time. And so if you look at the totality of 1 Corinthians and when we get into the gifts in chapter 12, and then the love, and then judging prophecy, the Lord's Supper, which we've talked about a lot. We have to live with the knowledge that who is most important and who's doing the best job isn't known totally until later when the Lord comes. Wait until the Lord comes. Now we know what's important, and we know what should be emphasized, but we're not sure who did the best job, but we honor 
one another. We, we honor one another who are part of the body of Christ because we need each other and we can't even determine. If you look at the list in chapter 12, I'm thinking ahead to that. They, people go, oh, the worker of miracles, that must be me. We're not even sure what he meant because it just works of power. But in the same list, what do you have? Helps or service or hospitality. We can't make our own hierarchy of status and say this is what's important. We just need, how do you know? Well, you don't take a Myers-Briggs test to find out your gift. You show up and serve and God will use you and that's enough. If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Corporate solidarity. Show up, serve, care for people, do what you can, and the Lord will use each one of us. And in the end, it's the benefit of the whole body. And trying to keep score is really bad in a church. They do it in soccer. We noticed that because they had these cup, this cup going on. Kind of odd. They don't. If you don't score at all, you might still be okay. That's kind of odd, isn't it? But we don't have to keep score. We just need to serve and see what's important. So that's what we're learning. What's important. So the teacher is not to shrink from declaring what's profitable, and what's profitable is determined by God, not by the culture. Okay, teaching you publicly. Um, recently published an article about creedalism and one of the claims I critiqued a book that I disagree with called the creedal imperative one of the claims in the book was if you don't have a creed that's published then you know you're not public you need to publicly declare what you believe and my rejoinder to that was but every group has public, in the back of the hymnal, published creed, but find one that actually believes what it says in there. Now, what you believe is more likely what you preach in a pulpit, not what's in the back of the hymnal. I experienced that personally as a youth. When the creed, when I got to be 12 years old, the pastor said, well, we don't believe these things. They're all in the creed, but we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe... And Jesus walked on water. We don't believe that he multiplied the bread. These are just inspiring stories. Now, I would say it's not wrong to publish a creed, but there's no imperative to say you have to say this is what we believe and that's our boundaries and nobody can challenge any of it no matter what. So in some case, it's truncated. There are things taught in the Bible, not even covered, that become fair game. So the imperative is not to have a creed in the back of your hymnal, if you have a hymnal, uh, which is another thing. But uh, there's some traditions you could say are within liberty and others are um, stifling to the church. Publicly, house to house means... This is so important to me. I teach it now. I teach it 
in a small Bible study. We talk about it with each other, and these things weigh heavily on us, and they're important. And if somebody challenges us, we don't say, oh, you know, here, here's what we believe. And it may not be preached for 10 years, and you'll never hear about it again. But here's what it is. Oh, okay, 12 years old, here it is. Now you believe that, but we don't believe it. Happens all, do you think it doesn't happen? It always happens, over and over and over. Um, and I've heard people say that at an ordination service where they had to swear they believed certain things, and one by one by one, when the graduates got in the back, ordained, ready to go, they were saying to each other, well, that was a bunch of baloney. I don't believe any of it. But now I get to go be a pastor somewhere. They don't believe it. Somebody's social pressure from hundreds of years ago doesn't actually change the heart. God changes the heart. House to house. Notice solemnly testifying, meaning that this was serious and important, and it was a way of testifying. I think there's a particular Greek word translated solemnly testifying, but I, I remember looking up every time that was used, but I think this is a good translation to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. So we have revealed truth. Nothing avoided to please man. Repentance, which is thematic in Luke Acts. And remember, you don't find out every time repentance was taught by only consulting your strongest concordance. Because as Eric, I think, mentioned last week, epistrepho, is that the word? To turn again is a synonym. Turning from idols to serve the living God is saying the same thing. So there's many times it's taught. So a guy like this, uh, Les Feldy, comes along and say repentance isn't for the church to teach. That was just for the Jews. And you don't find it after so-and-so. So I wrote an article to refute that. But, of course, he, he, it's just awful. Why, why, why? Why teach this nonsense? Because do you think turning from idols to serve the living God is not repentance? But if the word repent shows up, well, that's just for the Jews. We've, that's, not, that's why I have to say these things. People are deceived. Kindly old gentleman sitting on TV looking like he wouldn't harm anybody teaching garbage. And when you refute him, well, his followers said, well, I said, well, what about this? What about that? Oh, I got to call us Feldig and find out. Because they couldn't find it in the Bible, and neither can he. He just made it up. Truncating the canon down to just a few things. First few verses in Acts, or 1 Corinthians 15. Repentance is to pre be preached to all. Do you think that somebody who's truly born of God hears repentance and hears the details of the gospel preached, the response is going to be, we already know that. If you hear someone say, I, here's who Jesus is. Here's, he, he's the Lord, he's the creator. 
incarnate, son of God, the details, repentance. Why would that offend a Christian? Or would it cause the response, I already know that, tell me something I don't know. What does the Bible call that? Having itching ears? So here's the summary of it. Oral proclamation with boldness. Critical and necessary truths were taught. Teaching was public and private. In other words, in a public meeting, meeting and in private homes, every available forum was used. Whatever forum it might be, Paul preached in Athens, he preached in a synagogue, and he preached by the river, he preached in Philippi with the help of Lydia. Wherever he went, he preached the truth. To any audience, Jews, Greeks, philosophers, slaves, civil authorities, Jewish authorities, anyone else. Preach the word. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, including coming judgment and God's wrath, that is often deleted. There's not a single popular survey that's going to come back. I want to hear about the reality of hell because that was certainly denied in the church where I grew up by one pastor after another, which didn't bother me because I was unconverted. But when finally I did come to Christ, I went back to the pastor that was there at the time, and he said, and I told him about how I came to Christ, how I was saved, told him about what I saw in biochemistry that showed that God had to have created everything, namely through the heme molecule, and then how I was born of God through the testimony of Christians. And he said, you know, this, he, somebody probably educated in the early like 1910, World War I era education. He was older in his 70s. He said, well, when I was a young man, I had some experience like that too. I, I understand where you're coming from, but now I know the good Lord just understands everybody's sincere and, and uh, he's not going to judge anybody. I remember the guy's name. That's what he said. Well, the good Lord, and it's all, it's all going to work out. So he had left that aside, despite the fact that's not even what their denomination said they believed. We're not trying to make people feel worse about life. We're trying to sober us all up about what God said about the end is really true. It's part of the gospel. What are we saved from? A lack of happiness or from the wrath of God? Now, Paul is bound to go to Jerusalem. Talk, by the way, uh, being how I want to thank Christy for getting this done, I decided to have included on our printout, I did a little of the work by putting red in here, but that's not exclusive. Look at the entire address on, the, on your outline. From, this goes from Acts 2017 to 2036. This is Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus. Starts with 17. Now, what you can do, this is a good way to make sure the preachers are being honest with what they're teaching you. Learn how to read and ask 
pertinent questions, we can all learn. And good readings might happen right in class. Oh, look at that. I, didn't, I hadn't saw that. And we can see more. We can learn. It's only, assuming it's part of the text. So if you look, I put in red things that I thought would indicate a theme. In verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that would be profitable. Verse 21, testifying Jews and Greeks with respect to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. I think the implication is that is indeed profitable. Would you agree? Right here um, in verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I've got to tell you something. When it was necessary to begin a new congregation because the things, frankly, you can disagree if you, if you feel the need, Eric, but what I'm saying here is the reason really there was a split because this is what we wanted to do. Teach not you know, do this and don't do that and counseling and stuff. We wanted to do the whole counsel of God. Is that right? Amen. Okay. So I was thinking what would be a good name um, for a fellowship. So the gospel of grace came right from the verse here, verse 24. Gospel of grace. And um, now notice in verse 25, I have highlighted proclaiming the kingdom. That's something that I think we need to fill in the blanks, and I'll try to do that as we get to it. But what exactly is the nature of the kingdom right now, and what does it have to do with the church? Now, some people that we would normally agree with say the kingdom is only for the Jews, so we can ignore that idea. They're wrong. Okay? Um, This was addressed to the Ephesian elders, so the kingdom is an important idea, and we'll have to talk about that. Verse 26, I'm guiltless of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole purpose of God. Notice, uh, proclaiming anything will be possible, testifying to repentance. I'm looking for action words about Paul's ministry. So that's why I found, I put these ones in red. Proclaiming, testifying, to testify, proclaiming, for I did not shrink, verse 27, from proclaiming the whole purpose of God. And then in 2032, I entrust you to God and to the message of his grace, which is another action word about proclamation. That's why I highlighted these in red before I sent them to Christy. Now, you could, you could take this speech and look for other themes, so not just the ones I did. This had to do with what's taught because it had these words for testifying, proclaiming, preaching, announcing, and so on. And we see a theme there. The message of his grace is synonymously parallel with the gospel of grace. It's the same idea. It's not two different messages. And then we have other things. So here's what we want to do as we go through this. Hang on to this. Hang on to this page. 
And maybe you can use, I like to use colored pens, but maybe just making up for one of my weaknesses, which is able to, if it all is one color, I just can't seem to see the details. So I have all these colored pens. But think about this. When Paul repeats a theme, it's important. Sometimes there's synonymous parallelisms. Sometimes there's antithetical ones. This, not that. Sometimes there's uh, like a chiastic structure that goes boom, 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 and then back boom, boom, boom. So all of this is important and helps us define a church. So I commend this to you. I believe that the members of any congregation are also the priesthood of every believer in the sense that we all are hungry to learn, able to read, able to understand this, and to uh, prophesy in the biblical sense to one another about what God has said and help one another. So that's why that's there. Now, on 22 through 23, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, bonds and afflictions await me. Now, we want to... This this will come up a bunch of times. And some see a problem because it seems to be a conflict. The Holy Spirit is God the Spirit. We believe in the Trinity, which is a biblical idea. And certainly bonds and afflictions did await him. There's another one by the name of Agabus, who demonstratively showed what would happen. Some pleaded with him not to go, but then he said, well, why are you breaking my heart? And looking at Luke Acts as the two-volume work that it is, I believe that the astute reader of Luke, and I've had people help me see this, when you get to Acts, you'll see that Paul has to go to Jerusalem for similar reasons, but not the same reason exactly that Jesus did. The don't be put off by scholarly terminology because scholarship will help you. Anti-scholastic bias will make you vulnerable to exploitation from unscrupulous preachers. The more you know about how to read and understand, the safer you are from being exploited. So. Sometimes the terminology make make us, oh, it's liberalism, I won't listen to that. Listen, there's a phrase called the narrative purpose. Anyone writing, including Holy Spirit-inspired authors like Luke, are writing narrative to who about things that happen to bring us to believe certain things to a point. One of the narrative purposes in Luke Acts is thematic and Luke Acts is focused on Jerusalem and one of the things Jesus says is Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her that's a theme and so that theme is set in Luke and predicted also to happen to not just Jesus but the disciples and that this is God's plan And it's part of how God is going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
But it's also clear in Luke Acts that it does not imply God will not keep his promises to ethnic national Israel. Both things are simultaneously true. So it's not anti-Semitic to say Jerusalem directs, rejects the prophets sent to her. Jesus said that. But when they asked, now are you restoring the kingdom to Israel, the times and epochs are fixed by the Father's authority, but you shall be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's going back to Jerusalem, by, led by the Spirit, to be rejected. Does that make sense? Help, just read with me. Help me read with me and think as we go along. Because the next chapter, he's going to get there. And what happens is amazing. And I, I can show you later that Jesus himself stood by Paul's side and said, as you, it was God's purpose that he testified in Jerusalem. Jesus says that we'll say that later. So also you must testify in Rome. So Acts 1.8 is going to be fulfilled in this process. So here we have bound by the spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, but <coughs> afflictions and bonds await. So this is an echo of, I'm, I'm saying, of Luke 9.51 in the travel narrative. I've got, I've, I asked Eric about this, and I have permission to do this. Thank you, Eric, or Pastor Eric. I, uh, this next Sunday, I'm preaching on the section in 1 Corinthians 5, and I've got the material, the study done, and I'm laying out the sermon. The week after that, I'm going to do a review and go back into Luke, which I preached probably 15 years ago, and show how the travel narrative is laid out and deal with some verses where Jesus, the turning point, it starts in Luke 9.51, goes to Luke 13.33, and it goes on to Luke 19. And it's a reverse parallel construction. The center... <laughs> The center is emphatic. The beginning, the center, the end is emphatic. So I'll preach the center on the 18th of December and show you how that lays out because it'll help us with Acts. And it's pretty heavy right now. I'm not going to skip things in First Corinthians, but it's pretty heavy. I didn't, as people are getting ready for the holidays, I didn't want to do more on immorality in church discipline. I'll do that next week. And then we'll switch for a while and then we'll go back and deal with what happens in, in Corinth there and how it needs to be corrected. So the, this whole thing, 1333, the rejection is just built in. Now, why would Luke write that? He's inspired by the Spirit. Why reject? Why preach Jesus' rejection? Okay, for one thing, it's fulfilling of Scripture. It's already previewed in the speeches early in Luke, in the mouth of, uh, remember thematic is uh, Joel 2.28, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So men and women both prophesy early in Luke about Messiah. Okay? And including Zacharias, Mary, and so on. Simeon is really important. The rise and fall of many in Israel. There's going to be rejection. Some people we thought were the great people are going to be, are going to fall. Some people who were nobodies are going to rise. 
Mary said God took, I think I got the right reference, he, he took heed to my humble estate. You see the same idea here. Paul was an enemy. He had no standing in the church, but God had a different idea. So Luke 19.44 speaks of a visitation. Let me talk about that theme. Visitation is important in church leadership because the word for visitation is part of the very word for overseers. Okay? So, uh, Eric, you're right there with the mic. Could you look up Luke 168? Yes. Absolutely. And then um, I want to talk about episcopos, and then the word for shepherding. Go ahead. Amen. Luke 168, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Visited. So he has visited us. Now, who said that in Luke 168? That would be Zacharias, Zacharias. filled with the Holy Spirit, so yeah. a reliable witness. This should be obvious, but it isn't always for everybody. If Luke says, so-and-so filled with the Holy Spirit said, then you should listen because that's God. Does that make sense? So Luke's telling us to listen to Zacharias. God has visited his people. Now that sounds good, but is it always good? Um, what happens throughout the Bible when there's a visitation of God? Judgment and salvation. Um, and this happens again and again and again. Some are judged and some are lifted up. Typically, the ones judged were the haves, the people with status and honor, and the ones lifted up were the ones who were considered crazy. What about even in the case of Noah? He was lifted up out in the ark out of the water, but there's a guy for all these years building. There's never been a flood. He's building a boat. He's nuts, right? But the visitation saved him and his family and judged everybody else. So visitation means judgment and salvation. Visitation, and again, I don't know that I put the Greek word right here. Uh, I have it printed somewhere, but we don't have enough time. I'll bring that when we get to it. Visited, oh, here it is. <clears throat> I got a Maybe I'll just blow this up a little bit here in my notes. White cursor on white doesn't really show up very well. <laughs> Luke 168, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. Visited, episcopome, which is a verb, the word visitation, it's episcope, which is a noun. Uh, in Greek, episcopome would be called a deponent verb, but you don't need to know that. But it's, it's taking what would be a noun, making it into a verb form, and using it that way. Um, we do something like that in English. Somebody says, did you Google that? 
Now, is Google a verb or a noun? It's a noun. It's a noun, but we turn it into a verb because it's useful to do so. Because it's easier to say, did you go and look it up on Google? You Googled it. So visitation, that's just a simple way of explaining deponent verb. So a visitation here is um, a, a verb. He visited, that's a verb. Visitation is a noun. So the visitation that Zacharias prophesied about, we know from the mouth of Simeon, is going to be the cause of the rise and fall of many in Israel. Now this particular visitation is the most profound there can be because it's the visitation of the creator, the virgin-born son of God, walking among his own people, God incarnate. And so if you read Luke, you'll see what this visitation accomplishes. One of the first narratives in Luke is in Luke 4, when Jesus comes to his hometown and opens the scroll, and there's a discussion whether that was their reading of the prophets, and it happened by miraculous providence to be right there, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he read it. Today this is accomplished in your hearing. And then he went on, and what happened by the time he got done applying it? They want to throw him off a cliff. So, it did, so it's not so good for those folks. But, so the, but then there are others who come, like the woman who weeps on his feet. So when there's a visitation of God, God comes on the scene, episcopi, episcopos, elders, I mean overseers, press, and so that would be where we get our word episcopal, and it's based on the word to see, scopos and epi upon, so to come and look what's going on. Now some say, well, what, what's that all about? God's omniscient, he knows everything. Does God actually have to show up to see what's going on? You already know what's going on. Have you ever heard that kind of criticism? But this is vivid. This is the incarnation. This is vivid. Because we can sort of ignore that God knows what's going on if he's not actually here. That's what we do. But in this case, in history, the Son of God, the, the, the prophet, priest, and king, the Holy One, is here, and you're going to get by with anything. He knows exactly what's going on. You see that in John, a woman at the well. Boy, he wasn't very seeker sensitive. Go tell your husband. Well, turns out she had a bad situation. It was very sinful. And so he, he knew that. And what did she say? Well, look, you've got to come and see this guy. He knew everything about me. Normally, I'd make you run away and stay away, right? But she had a heart to, for that living water by the grace of God. So here's your visitation. So what's happening? Jesus visits, and Jerusalem rejects the prophet. Let me close with this. I'll, I'll read it to you, Luke 19, 41 through 44, which is very important in Luke Acts. And uh, Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, this is at the end of the travel narrative, as we're heading toward his entrance, he drew near, Luke 19, 41, and saw the city, 
he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things which make for peace. Why does he mention peace in the context of Jerusalem? Is it Jerusalem, city of peace? Is that correct? But now they are hidden from your eyes. So there's irony there. Verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's prophesying what will happen and we find out later. We know now in 70 AD. Verse 44. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, here's a purpose clause, you did not know the time of your visitation. There's what, that's, and so in that bigger context, we'll, we'll find out that elders, presbyteros, overseers, episcopos, and shepherds, and I don't have that word on my tongue, poi, what's the, what's the shepherd in Greek? Poeme, yeah. like our word poem, are all either roles or the status of the elders. It's one group. It's not layers of authority like a hierarchy. One role is to be the elders who look after the well-being, those who would shepherd for the well-being of the flock. And the other role as the episcopos is to oversee, in a sense, being grounded in Scripture being able to see what's going on now so that we don't get caught in trouble on the day when God himself does it. So in God's stead, overlooking what's right and wrong and helping us. That's kind of the role. I'm giving you the the overview. And so that being said, Paul going there is necessary to show that not only do they reject Messiah, they also reject his apostles that he sent. That's why it's like this in Luke Acts. So let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for giving us a hunger to learn the truth. Pray for Eric as he preaches, for all of us as we gather together to worship, to remember what you've done for us. We ask you for wisdom and understanding as we study and listen and pray together. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.